with that in mind, we are jumping back into our series in the book of Acts. Y'all had fun with Kristen last week? Yeah? Good. I know. I, uh, I watched her sermon, and I'm like, you're going to have to get a little bit worse um, because you're getting a little too good at this, and it makes me nervous. But that's all right. Uh, I'm glad to be back here with you. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I actually flew to Jacksonville, Florida, um, also known as maybe what I call the armpit of Florida. I don't know if you've ever been there. Uh, oh, there's some Jacksonville fans in here. I don't know. Uh, it was okay. It was okay. But I went there for an annual pastor's conference with our denomination, which we are part of a denomination called the Evangelical Covenant Church. And you, when you fly somewhere, you know this, when you fly somewhere, what is the one thing you need more than anything else? Headphones. You're not getting on the plane with headphones. What's the one thing you... I heard 17 different things. I thought this was going to be clear. A what? A pot... Oh, my God. You need your identification. Lord Almighty. Wow. Have you all traveled before? Have you done this? You need a pilot. Give me a break. You need your ID. You need your identification. You're going nowhere if you don't have your ID, right? You can have your boarding pass. If you don't have your ID, it does not matter. In fact, as I waited in the security line, I realized that there was like this holdup, uh, which you never want when you're waiting in the security line. You don't want to hold up anything in that. But I was kind of like, what is going on? It's, it was like 4.30 in the morning. It was an early flight. There's this holdup, and I couldn't really feel, figure out what was going on. And, um, you know, everybody was sort of like mumbling about what is going on? Like, could we move this along? And eventually we saw this person like very upset, um, kind of leave and go off to the side or whatever. And word kind of got through that the person didn't have their identification. They didn't have their ID and they wouldn't let them into the security area. And so, you know what all of us did? We immediately double checked to make sure we had our ID to get on there. And I'm not sure what happened to that person, but I'm guessing, barring a miracle, they may have missed their flight and had to scramble to make new plans. And so in our world, identification is essential to get through what you want to do to turn uh, a, when you turn a certain age. You need it for traveling. You need it when you drive. You need it if you want to buy certain items, which include cold and flu medicine now. You uh, need it when applying for a job or securing a loan or getting a marriage license. You have to be able to provide identification. This is who I am to the powers that be. And so having that ID with you enables you to function in the world and more importantly, enables other people to properly confirm your identity when it's needed most. Now, if you're a person who's ever had their identity stolen before, you know how very precious your identification really is. Here's the problem, though. Ultimately, my identification doesn't really tell anybody about who I am, right? I, I mean, it has this really outdated picture of me. And in Arizona, our identifications don't expire till we're like 65, right? So if you, have a, if you get it when you're 16 or 21, you like that, let, you'd be the same picture. I don't really get that, but still, you have this outdated picture. You, know, you have my height and my weight, uh, my eye color, my hair color, my birth date, whether or not I want to give my kidneys, should I suddenly die, 
Those are the things that are on my identification. It's an identity marker for sure, but my identity does not tell the whole story on that little card. That, that's not really who I am. It only scratches the surface as to who I really am. And we're going to see as the, the church starts to get legs in the first century, things to become more and more complicated for them. I mean, great things are happening, but there are so many variables for them to all of a sudden have to keep track of. And at the top of the list of those complications early on is the fact that there are now these Gentile believers. Gentile is simply a word that means non-Jewish, right? Up until a few verses ago, the only believers were Jewish primarily. But now with stories like Cornelius and his friends in Caesarea, the early church is scrambling to figure out who they really are. Who are we? Their identification as a community is now at large. There's confusion. There's complication. And it's starting to seem like their identification of who they once were was a little outdated and something new needs to take its place. So with that in mind, uh, grab your phone if you have it and open up the YouVersion Bible app. Um, Great tool. You can follow along with everything I'm going to cover here today. And by the way, if you're a part of one of our groups, your group discussion questions are on the app now. So you scroll down to the bottom. All right. Yeah, that's exciting. Uh, you can you can see those questions. You can use those as a tool to just sort of think through everything we're going to talk about today as well. And if you're going analog this morning with your Bible, we're going to be in Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 19. So just a quick recap as to where we've been up to this point. At the end of chapter 10, Peter connects with Cornelius, a Roman centurion, and his friends. And after telling them about Jesus, uh, they believe, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and Peter and his friends and his companions that are with them are dumbfounded that the gospel message is going beyond the confines of Judaism. And so they return back to Jerusalem. And if you remember, when they returned back to Jerusalem, word has gotten back about what they have been doing in Caesarea and Joppa. They've been eating with Gentiles. They've been hanging out with these people. And there's some traditions within Jewish law that says, you know, you really shouldn't do that. And so upon their arrival back to Jerusalem, they get criticized. Like, what are you doing hanging out with a Roman centurion? And so Peter himself is like, I get it, but let me just tell you what I saw. And he uses, remember, the most powerful asset he has when facing confrontation or criticism, which is the story that he has. So he tells them the story. At the end of him telling the story, these Jewish leaders and believers go, we get it. We see it. This is amazing. This, we should be praising God for this. What they don't realize, however, is that Peter's encounter with Cornelius is only one of many that is occurring throughout the Roman Empire at that very moment. Even as Peter and the leaders of Jerusalem are speaking, the Holy Spirit is in the process of changing the hearts of non-Jewish Gentile people all over the empire, which is where we're going to pick it up in Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 19. You ready? Okay, thank you, Jane, and two other people. Are you ready? Here we go. Meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. They preached the word of God, but only to Jews. 
However, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. The power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. Now, as I mentioned, in Acts chapter 10, we see some of these first Gentiles come to faith and be filled with the Holy Spirit, something these first Jewish believers never expected to really happen, right? Their Messiah, Jesus, was Jewish. And so this was a, a new way, if you will, of Judaism. The, the, the prophecies that had occurred in the Old Testament had been fulfilled. And so Jew, Judaism hasn't gone out the window. They're just continuing on in this Jewish faith, except all these people who are not Jewish seem to be joining with them. And it's becoming confusing for them. And as we see in these two verses, what happened in Caesarea and Joppa was only the beginning of something that's going to continue to happen for the rest of time. While all of that is happening, believers scattered in places like Cyprus and Antioch are seeing the same thing happen. Large numbers, the text says, of Gentiles are placing their faith in Jesus as they hear the story. So the church in Jerusalem has to respond, and they respond again. Verse 22, when the church of Jerusalem heard what had happened, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw this evidence of God's blessing, he was filled with joy, and he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and strong in faith, and many people were brought to the Lord. Uh, commentator John Polhill calls Antioch a natural setting for the Gentile missions. It was just like set up perfect for this sort of thing to happen. He pointed out that Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time, with a population somewhere in the, the area of 500 to 800,000 people, which made it third to Rome and then Alexandria. This is a massive city in the Roman Empire, and it is perfect soil for the gospel to go through and reach people who are not Jewish, Gentiles. In other words, Antioch was this diverse culturally, socially, and ethnically as any city in the empire at the time, it became a hotbed for Gentile conversions in the church's history. And because of the explosion of Gentile conversions, the church in Jerusalem sends a guy named Barnabas to explore what is happening. But when Barnabas gets to Antioch, he realizes he is in over his head, and he's going to need some backup. So he reaches out to a guy named Saul. Verse 25 says, Then Barnabas went on to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. Both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. It was at Antioch that the first believers were first called Christians. In over his head, Barnabas runs to Tarsus to get Saul, who would later be named uh, Paul. And Paul has been in Tarsus for a while now. He's been studying He's been trying to figure out this whole Messiah thing, the Savior thing. He's a new believer in and of himself. And this is really the first time that Paul leans into this new calling he has to teach and disciple Gentile believers. Verse 27. During the same time, some prophets traveled from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up in one of the meetings and predicted by the Spirit what a great famine that a great famine was coming upon the Roman world. This was fulfilled during the reign of Claudius. So the believers in Antioch decided to send relief to the brothers and sisters in Judea 
everyone giving as much as they could. This they did, entrusting their gifts to Barnabas and Saul to take to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. You know, it's funny. I'm just going to sidebar here for a second. Some people will kind of look through the scripture and be like, what is the first thing that happens when local churches get established in new areas? Do you want to know what one of the first thing that happens is? They start giving stuff away. Right? Antioch, brand new place. People are becoming Christians for the first time. They just got the name Christians, which we're going to talk about in a second. And, and, and they're just figuring this stuff out. And what is the first thing they do? They hear that the people in Jerusalem are going to be suffering, so they give. They give. What's funny is um, there's kind of this old adage in uh, the 21st century American church, which is that the last thing in a person's life to get saved is their wallet. And um, it's very true. Like, I think we have something to learn from here. The first thing they do is they give. Sometimes for many of us, the last thing we do is we give. We've lost sight of that. All right, here's the thing, though. Christianity, as it's coming about in Acts chapter 11, is like the Wild West all of a sudden. I mean, it's just wild what's going on. People are scattered throughout the Roman Empire. There are very few guidelines as to how they're supposed to operate. Believers are doing exactly what Jesus said and preaching the good news wherever they go, including places like Antioch. Most believe the message of Jesus was only for Jews at the time, but now all of a sudden there's all these Gentiles from all different backgrounds and histories and ethnicities. Saul, the one who was persecuting the church in Acts chapter 2, is now in Antioch with Barnabas, teaching people. Prophets are showing up. They're predicting famines. People are giving generously to the church in Jerusalem, just like right out of the gate. I mean, it is the Wild West in the Roman Empire. There are like no rules to what's happening. And yet, in the middle of all of it, I don't want us to miss this, something extremely significant happens. You know, one of the early struggles, as I mentioned earlier, in the first church is how to answer the question, who are we? Who are we? I mean, for those who were Jewish believers, they were struggling to reconcile their Jewish identity with following Jesus. And for those who were Gentile, whatever that might mean for them, they were struggling to reconcile their gentle, Gentile identity with following Jesus. In fact, it wasn't uncommon in the first century churches, this is going on, for people to refer to one another as those are the Jewish believers and those are the Gentile believers. Being Jewish or being Gentile seemed to precede following Jesus. I'm a Jewish believer. I'm a Gentile believer. I'm a Roman believer. I'm a Greek believer. But in Antioch, something shifts, something changes. In the, in the middle of the Wild West of Christianity in the first century, Luke, the author of Acts, adds just this little anecdote that would have jumped out on the page to his first readers. At the end of verse 26, Luke adds this parenthetical statement, almost like a throwaway statement. He says it was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. In Antioch, of all places, the Jewish and Gentile believers are given a new name. They receive this new identity marker for themselves. 
They, they go from being Jewish believers and Gentile believers and Roman believers and Greek believers and Democrat believers and Republican believers. Did I step on toes there? I'm sorry. You know where I'm going. To Christians. Now, what's interesting about this is that Luke makes it sound like it wasn't the believers that came up with that word. It was outsiders looking at them that came up with that word. Isn't that interesting? That while within the church they were like, I'm Jewish, and I'm Gentile, and I'm Republican, and I'm a Democrat, and I'm Roman, and I'm Greek. The outside church went, no, you're not. You're all a bunch of Christians. What's the matter with you? Like they got it before the church did. Right? That doesn't happen anymore, right? We figured it out. It's really interesting that someone outside of the church decided to begin to give them a new identity. The Greek word that is actually used there is Christiani. Christiani. And the great commentator, William Barclay, says that the suffix iani loosely translates to mean belonging to the party of. Or in this case, belonging to the party of Christ. Right? But the world is also like this slang word. It wasn't a real formal word. It was almost like a tongue-in-cheek word. Remember, it was outsiders naming the church, going, ah, they're just a bunch of Christians, right? It was this sort of like funny slang word that they would use to determine who these people were. And so Barclay claims that the English equivalent of the word would mean something like Christ folk. It's a bunch of Christ folk. There's a sort of backcountry, you know, hillbilly, odd ring to the name that those not part of the community describe to use to describe the first believers. Christ folk. Which is fitting, right? Because following Jesus is sort of this backcountry, odd way of living in life. And whatever the case may be, this moniker, this new name would become the identification of Jesus' followers for generations to come. No longer would they call themselves Jewish believers and Gentile believers, Roman believers and Greek believers, believers from Cyprus and believers from Antioch. From here on out, they would be known as Christiani, Christians, Christ folk. This experience, I believe, influenced so much of what Paul would go on to write to the local churches in place like, places like Colossae and Philippi, Philippi and Corinth and, uh, and, and uh, Galatia. He would write things like this in Colossians 3.3, for you died to this life and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. You once identified as Jewish and Gentile, but now you are Christiani. You are Christ folk. 2 Corinthians 5.17, he says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. You used to identify as Jewish and Gentile, Roman and Greek. Your last name used to matter most, and your position in life gave you identity and purpose. But all that has been put to death, Paul says. At the top of your identification card, it now says Christiani. Christ folk, Christian. Paul goes on to develop this idea further in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. He says, there's no Jew or Gentile or slave or free or male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. You're Christ folk. 
Christiani. In other words, there is no identity marker more important than Christian when you follow Jesus. And isn't it interesting that it wasn't the Christians that came up with it? It was people looking in going, oh, no, no, you have a new identity, and it's Christiani. You are Christians. That's who you are. Every other identity marker, God is using this moment to tell them that every other identity marker in your life is secondary to this one. You know, I have a lot of identity markers. I'm a husband, father, son, brother, uncle, pastor, Phoenician, old man, hockey player, <laughs> white man, middle class, Vikings fan. Like, there's a lot of good. There's a lot of not so good in that, right? I mean, there, you have it too. Just an endless list of identity markers in your life. And in this passage, Paul is starting to realize, especially as he would write later, and Lucas is noting they, the people of Jesus, have a new identity that supersedes all other identity markers. They're Christians. They're Christ folk. They're Christ followers. And every other identity marker that they have and that you have and that I have is now secondary to that. It's secondary. And here's the thing. Whatever is at the top of your identity marker list will influence and shape every other identity marker in your life. My identity as a husband is always in submission to that of being a Christ follower. My identity of being a father or a pastor or a middle-class white man is all submitted to being a Christ follower first. All of them, even being a Vikings fan, needs to be submitted at the service of being a Christian, a Christ follower first. Now, we're going to see later in Acts that this is going to become a sticking point for the first believers, for these first Christians. They're going to wrestle with this. Groups of people will try and allow these other identity markers to bubble to the surface as more important than being Christ folk. And it will cause all kinds of problems. But by God's grace, he will just continue to guide and shape them. Which is why it is critical for us, followers of Jesus, to remind ourselves daily that at the top of our list of identity markers is Christiani. Christian. Christ folk. Christ followers. You are Jesus followers first and foremost. Everything else is secondary to it. And as soon as we get that out of order, things go awry. Not just personally, but corporately as a church as well. And so in a world where identity, I think, has become more and more murky, especially as our next generations come up in this world, when a person places their faith in Jesus, you have one identity that influences all of the other. You are Christ folk first. Remember that? You are Christ folk. When you go to work, your identity is not employee. Your identity is I am Christ folk first. And it influences how I work and how I interact with the people in my workplace, 
When you go to school, same thing. You're not just student. You are Christ folk first. And when you go to school, you are a student who is under the power and the influence of being a Jesus follower first and how you do your work and how you talk to your, your administrators and your teachers and your friends and your fellow students. It matters. It marks who you are in your homes. You are not just father. You are Christ folk first. And how you lead your family and love your wife and love your children and serve them and discipline them and correct them and lead them and guide them is all influenced by what it means to follow Jesus first. Are you getting this? You're Christ folk first. Yeah. We're a little backwards, right? We're, we're, we're a little odd at times, but we are Christ folk first. And when you place your faith in Jesus, everything else becomes secondary to that. I believe this is exactly what Jesus means when he says things like this in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. He says, if you want to be my disciple, you must, listen, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father, your mother, wife, and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. What is Jesus saying here? Is he saying, go hate your wife and your kids? No. He's saying, if you think that being a father or a husband is more important, or a mother and a wife is more important than following me, then you can't be my disciple. You have to be Christ folk first. And by comparison, it may even look like you hate them. Because your life is so devoted to who I am and to what I want to do. But the promise in there is that when you lose your life, what do you gain? You gain your life back, right? He goes on in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. He says, if you want to be my follower, if you want to be Christ, folk, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. Everything else has to become secondary to this. This is a high call. This is not like, you know, Jesus is riding in the sidecar with us, right? Like we're holding on for dear life behind them going, all right, I'll be a dad. Here we go. Teach me how to do this. I just want to follow you. And here's the thing. So much is competing to be the number one identity marker in your life. Even good things are competing for that place. Like being a mother or father, husband or wife. But when you place your faith in Jesus, your identity in him supersedes everything else. The strength of the church is built on this. Without the Jewish and Gentile believers letting go of those identity markers, I'm not sure we're here today. So let me ask you this question and be honest. What is at the top of your identity marker list? What is that thing that influences every other decision every other lifestyle that you choose in your life. Is it Jesus or is it something else? What is on the identification card of your life? Is it your name or is it the name of Jesus? Uh, we've been talking about this for weeks. The next week we're going to start to see people from our fellow church across the corner here at the shelter make their way to our church. This is their last Sunday. Please be in prayer for them. It's going to be a difficult week, I think. I know. I had the honor to be there last week. Amazing people. Um, we have much to learn from them. I'm going to be honest with you. They're a cool community. They're really cool. And I'm excited to see what happens because of that. 
But here's what I don't want to see happen. There's some danger in this. They, they, and we have identities. Shelter Genesis. And it's possible that when we come together, we hold on to that. We're Genesis people. Get your act together, right? Like that could be a, 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 an attitude of ours. And, and I think what this passage is teaching us is there is no room for that. You, whether you're at the shelter or Desert Springs or Desert City or Impact Church or CC, it doesn't matter. You are what? Christ folk. You are Christiani. And when you come together, that becomes the identity marker of who you are. And so as we welcome them into this church, into this body of Christ, may we remember that at the top of our identity marker is not Genesis. It is Christiani. Christ folk who love Jesus and love others. Yeah. I'm excited. Um, it's been a really crazy couple of weeks. Um, I was here on Wednesday night. Their youth group and our youth group came together, and it was like the Wild West in this building. <laughs> and I think that that is where the Spirit moves in the most amazing ways. It was awesome to watch. Uh, and it's going to take time. It's going to take time for those relationships to be built. And, and so I, my hope is that you'll stick around after service and just hear a little more about that, how you can be involved. But more than anything else, as you walk out of here this morning, my hope is this, that you will walk out remembering that when you think of who you are, that at the top of that list is Christian, Christ follower, Christ folk. And that lat influence everything else in your life. Let me pray. God, thank you for this morning, the chance to sit and listen and hear from your word. These amazing, crazy stories of what was going on in the first century as you were taking this ragtag group of people from all different backgrounds and all different experiences and cultures and ethnicities and bringing them together, morphing them into this unified body members of the body of Christ who identified more than anything else as Christiani, Christians, Jesus followers, Christ folk, who worked together, who loved each other, who loved the world so much that others would come to become a part of that family. May we, Genesis Church, be that kind of a place. May when outsiders look at us say, that's Christ folk right there. Those are Christians true-blooded followers of Jesus. It's funny, everything else seems to be secondary to them except for Jesus, and yet look at how they live. Look at how they walk through their marriages, through their schools, through their places of employment, through their neighborhoods. Look at how they live in their homes. Look at how they worship together as a community. Thank you for inviting us into this family. Generation after generation after generation of families who have held on to that moniker tightly. Christian, Christ folk. May we always remember that we are Christ folk first. And it's in Jesus, our Lord and Savior's name that we pray. Amen.